and welcome to the Undead Wookiee Podcast, episode 81, Blood and Black Lace from 1964. The Undead Wookiee is a fortnightly-ish podcast, focusing on horror and sci-fi, but there will be times when we dip into other genres, because here at the Undead Wookiee, our nerdiness knows no bounds. Hello and welcome back! I'm sorry we've been a little bit behind with uh, releasing the episodes, but we got a glutch in the bag, and they're all going to be coming to you very, very soon. Now, I've got a great great co-host coming up for this episode and i've got a very very special interview um with filmmaker alex Bourne at the end of uh where we would usually have uh what the wookie watched so not what the wookie watched on this episode but we got a great interview for you guys to have a listen to so ladies and gentlemen before i introduce my special co-host for this episode let's check out the trailer for blood and black lace a house of high fashion a dazzling whirl of elegance of exotic, extravagant beauties. An adventurous journey into the devastating allure of the most sophisticated women and their intimate secrets. Suddenly, these lace curtains ignite a drama that will lacerate your emotions. Blood and black lace. <coughs> who is this shrouded, sadistic, sordid fiend who maims and murders? Why this bloodthirsty orgy, this holocaust of lives? Blood and black lace in bleeding color. For shattering, shivering, shocking experience. We are back, ladies and gentlemen, and I am joined by my very, very special co-host on this episode, a master of the macabre, an auteur of all that is slashery and slaughtery, the one, the only writer, director, producer, and all-round good Greek guy, Charlie Steeds. Charlie, how the devil are you, sir? Very good, thank you. Thanks for that introduction. It's all right. We uh, <laughs> we do our best here. <laughs> so how does this day find you, all right? Yes, very good. A little break from uh, editing stuff. So, yeah, it's nice to come on and talk to you. Yeah, thank you very much for being here and giving up your time. Because I think it's fair to say um, you're a fairly busy man at the moment. I am, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, I mean, um, most people will be aware of, um, you know, a number of... I mean, I, I was going, sort of going back through before we uh, before we took looking at some of your credits. I mean, some of you, you know, looking at some of your stuff, sort of, um, people remember you from uh, some of your films, like, uh, like you got An English Haunting. Is that out yet? Or is it still... Is it due to be yeah, 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 that one just came out, I think it was in May. Um, so, yeah, that one's out on DVD at the moment. Yep. Yeah, and you've got Escape from Cannibal Farm. Um, so, you know, the, the Barge people looks fantastic, by the way. Thank you. Uh, I'm. Uh, I'm. It's on my list. It is on <laughs> the list. So I'm. I'm really, really looking forward to that. Um, so before we dive in, because we're going to be talking about one of my all-time favourites, Mario Bava's uh, Blood and Black Black Lace on this. Um, mm-hmm. So tell the good people, how did you 
what, how did you get into directing and writing horror? And, you know, so where did it all start for you? Well, uh, sort of, I, I always, for a long, long time, I've wanted to write and direct stuff. Um, and sort of my first filmmaker that I really fell in love with their style and got the idea that I wanted to do what they do um, was when I was younger I used to love Tim Burton movies because mm. you could you could so see you know this really really strong visual style that sort of connected between the different films yeah. um, which actually ties in nicely with what we're talking about because you know uh, Tim Burton, Tim Burton's hugely in, inspired by Mario Bava and Black Sunday, and yeah. and it's actually it, it is all that gothic, uh, the colours and the cobwebs and all the strange architecture, you know that that definitely uh, comes from Mario Bava's films as well as uh, I think Tim Burton just sort of amplified it. Yes. Um, but um, but because I could see so strongly, there was this continuous style. I realize what a director does, you know, to a certain extent, like I could see his stamp on every one of his movies. Mm, mm. And I used to, just as a kid, I used to love telling horror stories and creeping out the other children anyway, and sort of writing things. But to see that this guy, he had a specific way he liked to tell these stories that were uniquely his own made me think, you know what, well, that's, that's what I want to do. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, literally, I don't know, from maybe age 10, it's just what I've always wanted to do is just to write and direct movies. Um, and then I've just always have liked darker things and I've always loved, well, I haven't always loved horror. I was, I was really scared of horror for a really long time. And only when I was about maybe 13 or 14 did I actually finally get around to watching a lot of the classic horrors and yeah. fully becoming obsessed with horror. But it was quite good to hold off on basically the whole genre until that age because I, I was really interested in filmmaking at that time. You know, I was old enough that I'd, you know, picked up a camcorder and I was not just sort of watching them just for entertainment, but I was also quite interested in sort of how they were put together and the whole filmmaking behind it. And then suddenly this entire genre that I used to be too terrified to watch was there and, and presented itself for me to explore uh, so I just, like a lot of horror fans, just became totally obsessed uh, with horror movies. Um, and then in terms of actually getting into making them myself, um, I went to film school in London, which just seemed, you know, the natural thing to do, uh, you know, instead of going to university, well, it's university, but uh, it was a practical filmmaking yeah. degree. Yeah. Um, so naturally that's what I wanted to do. So I went and did that. Um and then, I mean, for anyone who wants to actually go to film school or is thinking about going to film school, to, to a certain extent it helped me, but also to a certain extent it was kind of a waste of a couple of years because what I learned and then did once I came out is there's not really, there's no shortcut into filmmaking. Yeah. You kind of, you just have to, you just have to go and do it yourself and do it the hard way in, in filmmaking unless you're connected to celebrities and stuff or very rich like there is no easy way there's only the hard way um so when i came out it was just a case of well right let's just let's just get what money i have together which was not very much at all <laughs> and just attempt to make that first feature you know so and and that's what I did and that was uh there's a film called Labyrinthia 
mm. which was, you know, it's a, it's a, the, the whole film's a total learning experience. And I've made 20 short films before I made that film. But, um, and the short films probably, there, there are some short films that are probably a lot better than what I did because, you know, I, I didn't have much money at all to do it. You know, I, I had such limited resources. So you look back and it's kind of crazy uh, what I actually, you know, even bothered to do. But <laughs> but I did it and it got, it got um, you know, I ended up getting a sales agent for it and it ended up getting distribution. I think still even now is my most successful and profitable movie which is just bizarre um <laughs> even compared to all my later stuff which is much much better and much higher budget um but uh but yeah you know i just sort of i learned things from there and and didn't realize that it was going to come out on dvd and i didn't i didn't have any understanding of that process of sales agents and distribution yeah um and so with with that sort of achieved, I thought, well, it's horror that I want to be doing, you know. Uh, so I got on and started making horror movies. Uh, yeah. And that's basically what I've been doing ever since. I mean, it is, it is, you know, I think no matter sort of, I don't think anything can really prepare you, can it, for when that, that the idea I'm kind of going through, I'm going through a very similar, I you know, experience at the moment with uh -huh. money for, you know, trying to put things together for school hall. And I don't think any, it's, I think the only thing you can kind of compare it to, which I get, which I have a similar experience of, is teaching. You, you know, uh -huh. you, you go to sort of, uh, you, you do your PGC and people tell you loads of different things and they give you some different ideas and then you suddenly get thrown in a classroom and it's like, fuck, I don't know <laughs> yeah. what I'm doing here. And you learn as you go along and you sort of have an idea um, and you sort of feel your way along and you sort of hit, speed bumps along but you get there in the end yeah absolutely i mean you you learn in filmmaking you learn by usually by what you fail at is is what helps you to learn so you don't repeat it for the next time yeah and i i think that there's so many uh certainly thinking back to like people i know from film school and and the attitudes of other people at film school and who has gone on to make anything and who never has managed to still make their first movie yeah um and I, I just think there's a fear that people have of uh that they're gonna make mistakes or that it's not gonna turn out to be good but you if you want to succeed you really have to just throw all of that to the side and just go ahead and just try it because you know your first like i say this advice to everyone all the time like your first feature like naturally in your head your instinct is that you want to get as much money as possible for your first feature you want to make it as big and crazy as possible because it's your first feature like you're always going to be remembered by your first feature mm. it's your it's your debut film but because it's your first feature because you don't have a hollywood budget you are going to screw it up like yeah. you are, you are going to make mistakes and and you are only going to be able to make probably a film with flaws like i mean it's 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 rare that you're going to turn out something perfect so really you want to keep things simple and achievable easily sellable uh which might mean that it's not necessarily it shouldn't necessarily be this super original idea or you might have some great idea but maybe you save that idea for your second or your third feature because the first one you're going to be learning, you know. So, what was your gateway drug into horror? I know you took we you mentioned Tim Burton and anything else, but what was the the sort of outright horror movie that you saw? You went, wow. 
this just blew my mind it was um i was in asda one day and uh and i saw on the shelf this dvd cover for uh, the mini series rose red the stephen king nice. miniseries nice and it was like uh it was a really nice uh i think two disc release in a slip case and just it was all red and it just looked really fancy and it had stephen king's name in huge letters on the front and i'd kept seeing the name stephen king everywhere uh, you know, like I, I'm starting to recognize that, you know, this name gets around. Um, but I didn't really know what that meant, you know, that that it said Stephen King. I mean, there was like 50 other horror movies on the shelf that all said Stephen King. So yeah. I was like, I was really intrigued by that, uh, first of all. And But the main pulling factor was that it was rated a 12. And so I knew it wasn't going to be really scary. I mean, I wasn't allowed to watch 15s and 18s. My mum was really strict uh, <laughs> with what I was allowed to watch. Um, so uh, because it was a 12, I knew it wouldn't be too scary. Yeah. Um, so I got hold of it um, and then eventually watched it. And I mean, that actually has kind of formed the foundation of absolutely everything that I love about horror and, and my particular tastes in horror because I love that it's a mini-series and that it's a really long story. I mean, yeah. I, I love really deep horror stories because, I mean, you say horror movie to, I guess, non-horror fans and they probably just think, you know, some kids get lost in the woods and then they get picked off by a slasher one by one and there's not really much of a story there. Yeah. But something like Rose Red is the absolute opposite of the spectrum where you know, it takes at least an hour before they even show up at the haunted house, yeah. you know, getting to know the intricacies of all these different characters and different sort of timelines of their lives and stuff like that. So something like Rose Red and something like it as well, like yeah. Yeah. those are like, for me, my favorite examples of horror and the way horror can really explore sort of characters and, and all their sort of dark histories. I mean, Rose Red's a great introduction to Horace. I mean, it's got an amazing cast. It's got Julian Sands in there. You got um, yeah. oh, um, Nancy Travis is in it. Uh, it's great. I haven't seen it in years, so you, I, it's one of the. It's really funny. I've been speaking to like a couple of people over the last couple of days, and they've mentioned things. It's like I got to watch that again. And yeah, watch yeah. That. And like my, I've got my watch list is like is like a, it's a scroll. It's no longer a list. But <laughs> but Rose Red is a great is a great mini series. Um, yeah, well, I, I did rewatch it not that long ago, maybe like within the past year, and it and it wasn't as good as I remembered. There <laughs> are I, moments in it that are, they, that are like, oh, okay, you're going that way, but but it's I, you know, in terms of what you think, what is it, early early nineties? Oh no, it's two thousand, two thousand, yeah, early two thousand, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's you know, it's it's still where King because King came out, fell dramatically out of fashion for a little while. Yeah, um, yeah, and I mean they did sort of you know you look at some of the TV stuff like uh, the long the Longoliers, um, uh-huh. which which has got a great again brilliant cast but kind of disappoints in some areas, um, and like I'm gonna yeah say, I, I wasn't a fan of that one <laughs> and like the TV the the, the mini TV series of uh, the Shining, um, yeah, yeah people didn't like that I re- personally being a fan of the book, um, I like don't get me wrong I think Kubrick's the shining is a masterpiece it yeah. is a it is a you know it is a cinematic masterpiece um but it's not the book whereas mm. the tv series yes it's got some flaws in it and yes the budget does kind of catch up with it 
Um, but it, but it's it's closer to the book. Um, yeah, yeah. And um, the actor who played Jack Torrance in it um, was in a, he was in a he was in a comedy series uh, called uh, Wings uh-huh. about an airport, and he played like the goofy um, the goofy guy. Um, uh, Stephen Webber, that's it. Stephen Webber, um, yeah, yeah. yeah, and Rebecca De Mornay is in it as well, uh-huh. um, which is which pops up, and it's directed by one of my favorite directors, a guy called Mick Garris, mm-hmm. and Mick Garris did like um, he wrote Hocus Pocus for Disney, um, and then he did um, Nightmare Cinema, and um, he's done you know he's done loads and it's a, and he's done quite a few Stephen King adaptions actually I mean famously yeah. he you know he did um, is it Critters Four Critters Two Critters Two Critters Two yeah 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 which I think is the best Critters that's the one with the giant ball of Critters <laughs> yeah, it, which yeah. is just a bonkers idea um, you know and you know he did Nightmare Cinema um, you know really and I think it's a really good adaption but it's not as polished of course as as Kubrick Shining um, yeah but yeah. in terms of like gateways and introductions into like horror i think it's it's a great place to start it's a great place. yeah well i mean basically once i'd watched the rose red miniseries i just got in my head that because like i say i was genuinely terrified of anything horror like it, it would make like even once i'd seen rose red which did really scare me at the time but um you know i'd catch a, even just like the advert on tv for the ring or the grudge or something like yeah i'd be so scared i would like cry over it like i was really really pathetic but if it had the name stephen king and it was a mini series because rose red was all right uh i felt i could just about handle it yeah so it was stuff like mick garris's the shining miniseries yeah the i then I started just watching loads of Stephen King miniseries, but it had to be Stephen King and it had to be miniseries because that was what was safe to watch. So really, after Rose Red, it was all it was just every Stephen King miniseries and then eventually every Stephen King movie. Yeah. That that was my introduction. Uh, yeah, I mean the other great one out there is Nightmares and Dreamscapes. It's yeah. Like, oh, I love Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Some of the stories aren't amazing. One of my yeah, favorite yeah. ones is where they've got that the, the couple who think that they, you know they they end up being transported to like some almost alternate reality, and it's yeah, supposed yeah. to be London, but it's clearly LA. It's <laughs> and, they, and everybody is like, "Oh, blimey, governor! Oh, I'm from <laughs> London, me! Fuck you now!" Funnily <laughs> enough, I rewatched that particular episode, Crouch End. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, like I don't know, maybe three months ago. Yeah. Um, so I've rewatched both of these things really recently. But yeah, I, I used to love that series too. Yeah, I mean the the one with the uh, the the story about the hitman uh, with uh, William Hurt uh-huh, uh-huh. and the, and the the the, um, the toy soldiers show up. Brilliant! Yeah. It's just genius. It's That's by far the best episode. Yeah, genius. and so little dialogue in it. It's just absolute mm. genius. Yeah, now, we you know we've we've sort of talked we. We've gone from like one legend of horror, um, of course, and we're going to be talking about Mario Bava, uh-huh. who um, I've been. I, I have. A, I do have a slight obsession with uh, with obviously with with Bava and Fulci and Argento and. Uh-huh. Um, but Bava, over the last couple of years, is, is kind of sort of he's slowly becoming my favourite. Mm-hmm. He is slow. I mean, I love Fulci. I think Fulci's movies are just. I think The Beyond is a masterpiece. I think it is. A, <laughs> yeah. It's a total mind melting masterpiece. And Zombie yeah. Flesh Eaters is just is is just so much fun. 
but <laughs> there is something inherently classy about Mario Barber. Yeah, uh, definitely. When was the first time you came across Barber? Um, actually, really late, to be honest, um, because I, I've loved Dario Argento for a really long time. Mm. Um, well, basically, since I first started discovering horror, you know, I, I would and was allowed to watch the 18 rated horrors. Yeah. I was then able to start trying to sort of import, uh, you know, weird European copies of Dario Argento movies yeah. that were, yeah. that were really expensive. And then they were really crap, yeah. you know, like the, they kind of just looked like bootlegs. Yeah. Um, and so I'd watched most Argento stuff. And then by the time I sort of finished my expensive European import Argento <laughs> collection, which took me a few months, that was when Arrow then came along and yes. started releasing all these far nicer editions where it, it was all cleaned up and, and looked so much nicer. So so Argento, I definitely discovered him first and Fulci. And then it was really it was really through Arrow that I started to then uh, these Mario Bava films were then available. I think the only one that I'd seen uh before getting the Arrow releases uh, was Kill Baby Kill, yeah. which I had. I had it was a sort of like Vipco dodgy release, but I don't think it was Vipco. I think it was maybe called Dead of Night or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's Dead of Night it's, actually. Yeah, yeah. It's like a very similar where it's just a black box with no artwork and yeah. just big ugly font on the front cover. So, so I'd seen Kill Baby Kill, but watching Kill Baby Kill on that version. And then watching it from the Arrow restored version yes. is like watching two totally different films because, you know, the colours and the cinematography, they really don't stand out on the uh, the, uh, the older edition. Yeah. Um, so when I finally watched, I mean, as soon as Blood and Black Lace came out through Arrow, uh, I bought it and watched it and just really quickly became just obsessed with all Mario Bava things. And, you know, I, I, I regard him as highly as Fulci and Argento. And you're right. I mean, because he, because he came first, you know, you have to give him credit really as the master of, of those sort of Italian horror filmmakers. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think you're absolutely right there. I think, and what I love, and um, my wife is, um, she's a massive Agatha Christie fan. Uh-huh. huge Agatha Christie fan um, and what what people sort of really don't sort of get and forget about is the link between Agatha Christie and the Jalo genre mm-hmm. um, and we were watching Blood and Black Lace last night we were sitting down and she'd never seen it before um, yeah. and instantly the connection was there and if you look at like film um, particularly the you know not so, the book of and then there were none uh, by Christie um, uh-huh. and like even the the last TV series of um, that they did a little mini series for and then they were none and then you look at the the Jalo uh, genre itself mm. there is you know and you add the, the class of Mario Bava there there is that, that there's a really really strong link and it's a great way and watching Bava is a great way into the Jalo genre because mm. I think some people make the, make the mistake of diving in head first straight into something like Tinabra or uh, uh-huh. you know, or you know um you know some of Argento's more out there and sort of esoteric <laughs> ideas it's like the first time I showed my wife Suspiria uh-huh. um she was like what am I watching 
what <laughs> is going on here? And I was like, well, you know, wait till we get to, you know, black belly of a tarantula. Um, yeah. <laughs> but Barva for me is, you know, it's just so classy. Everything mm. is immaculately shot. And one of my favorite one is Planet of the Vampires. That is one of the few that I still haven't seen, actually. It's really that, hard that to I get. really want to. I know, I know. I mean, I've been waiting for someone to do a nice Blu-ray release of it in this country. But, I mean, that's all I'm waiting for, really. But still haven't got around to watching it. I think I've, I've got a, like, a, like a region. It's region two, isn't it? It's mm. non-UK. I've got a region two uh, release of it on Blu-ray, and I spent a fortune on it. Um, just because I, I, I was, I, th- where was that? I think it was at Bristol HorrorCon actually, uh-huh. um, and it was there, and there was one left, mm. um, and like the um, the guy who was on the stall was he, he clearly had some kind of mind control, and he was like, oh, it's the last one, you know, you want it, and I was like, yes, I want <laughs> it, I will hand over my thirty quid, and oh, then God. realized I was like outside, I was like, ah, fuck, right, okay, just spent <laughs> okay, let's do this, yeah. And it's well, just... hopefully it was worth it. Oh, definitely, definitely. <laughs> and I got to say, Ridley Scott trying to claim that uh, Alien, Planet of the Vampires, had absolutely no bearing on Alien. You're a fucking liar. Because <laughs> it's it, it's just too uncanny. It's just yeah, too. Yeah. Un- it's just too uncanny. Don't well, get... I've seen I've seen stills from it, and I mean, some of it looks shot for shot very similar I, to I Alien. Mean, the reveal of like the engineer or the pilot mm. is ex- it is almost identical, mm-hmm. you know, with the exception of Mario Bava's characters are dressed in like leather, nineteen sixties sci- idea of sci fi spacesuits. But then uh, in Prometheus, they're wearing very, very similar yeah. uh, outfits that are definitely a homage to the film, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, so when did you come along, uh, come across, uh, you said it was Arrow, wasn't it? The Arrow release. Yeah, yeah. Of, uh, of Blood and Black Lace, um, which is just, it's a phenomenal film. It's an absolutely phenomenal film. Um, it is. And just to sort of give a bit of a rundown of sort of, you know, the, the numbers for, for everybody listening. It directed, uh, directed by uh, Mario Bava. Um, it was cut from a screenplay by uh, Giuseppe Barilla, uh, Marcello Fondonta, and screenplay by uh, Mario uh, Bava himself. Um, Eva Bartok was in it, uh, Cameron Mitchell, Thomas Reiner, uh, Claudante, uh, uh, Claudante, sorry, Dante De Paolo was in it. Um, it's an Italian, uh, West German, French uh, production. Um, I think the budget was like 150,000 for it. Um and it was shot in 1964 which um when you look at it it's very modern in a lot of aspects. It's very modern. It's shot in a very very modern way. It holds up incredibly well. Like I think that's the most striking thing when you first watch the movie yeah. is it it does not look like 64. It looks so good. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things that strikes me what was interesting is the opening credits to the to the film, mm-hmm. um, you, and I and I'm so glad that they they restored it for the Arrow release. Is when they did the American version of it, they took out the um, the sort of the the mannequins, and yeah, the casts. Yeah. They, they took that out, um, <laughs> yeah. and then they put some animated sequence in there mm. of like the dolls being shot, the mannequins and things being shot, which just like. Okay, I c- kind of get it, but it sort of didn't make an awful lot of sense. It's uh, you know, which 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 took away from it, but it's so vibrant. 
the mm. colours. It's stunning. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, and of course, you know, in terms of story, it, you know, you, you get all the you get all the Jalo classics. You get the, mas- the the faceless killer. You get the black gloves. Uh, you've got the El Scandalous uh, moments in it. You've got sort of um, you, you've got the the psychosexual elements to it. It's all there. Um, and this is the sort of would you say this is the first on-screen Jalo or the sort of the first modern on-screen Jalo that we get to, that we that we recognise? Yeah, I think it's regarded as the first. I mean, a lot of these uh, different tropes of the genre that you're talking about were kind of invented here, you know, or, yeah. or put together. Uh, here for the first time but having a rewatch of it I was also you know to just look at all the different scenes and all the different little scares and the way they mislead you Uh, like for example there's a character in it who uh, this creepy old lady who wears the exact same outfit as the murderer (laughs) and and in the first shot of her she's you know throwing things into a fire but you don't they don't frame her head so you can't see who it is so you assume that it's the killer, all those types of little things. Um, just, you know, they've gone on to become just really famous horror cliches that even today, you know, they still do these types of things in horror films, you know. Absolutely. And I mean, the, you know, and, and one of the things that struck me actually is, you know, it's 1964. Um, mm. Bava doesn't pull any punches any of the punches with any of the gore or any of the horror mm. you know it's still you know don't get me wrong there's a few things that take place off screen um but the scene um where is it it's, it's this nicholas character uh, her face is put onto the fight onto the fight onto the yeah. it's horrific and the screams are just are, it's mind-blowing and that's a very sort of that scene really reminds me of Lucio Fulci you know like that sort of prolonged pushing of a woman's face towards whatever it is a burning stove or a drill or you know that's definitely something that in every Fulci film you get about three or four moments at least where there's something like that you know a pair of scissors going towards an eyeball but again Fulci would sort of prolong that and and take it up to the next level oh, the yeah, same way yeah. it would you like know it... someone like Argento with the lighting and stuff you know I think Suspiria is like this this crazy lighting but they're just trying to top it even more you know well yeah and absolutely and I think you know with Fulci with the eye that scene would last at least 10 minutes of it yeah. getting, <laughs> and, and then you'd slowly get into like the actual gore of it but you know I think you're spot on I think when you look at Suspiria with the light in it's just like how can I go one bigger one better yeah, yeah. Um, and I think in some ways the, the, the giallo uh, genre kind of almost collapses under its own weight eventually mm. because everybody is trying to top it um, <laughs> yeah. and I think you know sort of um, the what makes Blood and Black Lace so effective as a film is just how well everything is shot how immaculate Mm. everybody looks well he's Uh, an amazing cinematographer uh you know and before he was a director he mario bava was was a cinematographer so he's he i mean you can definitely see that he's come from cinematography yeah and sort of almost stumbled into directing yeah yeah peggy it was peggy's character who gets her face shoved into the fire (laughs) it was peggy but what's amazing one of the things that i found out about this is the tracking shots on this were actually done using um, a child's like 
trolley like little cars because <laughs> they couldn't afford to to have a steady you know to have mm-hmm. have have tracks or anything so they just stuck the camera in a child's cart and you look at the movement of the camera in this film um and you look at the frame in um that you know that opening kill is mm. is incredible that that shot where you get the the sort of the backlit light and the silhouette of it um mm. it sort of dives into sort of almost that sort of um you you half expect to see like it feels a bit Fritz Lang at times. Yeah, definitely. It's you know it's and you can again you can see you know you know the influences on Burton and you know new Brian De Palma is a massive fan of the genre yeah, yeah. those type of films. Um, for you, what are the standout moments in this for you? Well, I think all of the kills, you know, oh, yeah, typical, yeah, yeah. typical horror fan, but just like all all of the kills. Um, like you were saying, he really doesn't hold back, and I don't know whether, I don't know what his thinking was behind this, but I mean, for 1964, it's just really shocking how brutal the murders actually are. Yeah. You know, just even if it's not gory, even if it's just a woman being strangled by the killer, I mean, he's throwing her around and throwing her into the furniture and slapping her like four times across yeah, the yeah. face. <laughs> yeah. Like, it, it's just it's just really cr- quite brutal. And I think it's that mixed with a couple of other things that make this... Because like you were saying, it, it is like an Agatha Christie murder mystery type film. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of sort of like German crime films of around this sort of era that were really popular that, uh, you know, so it, it wasn't it wasn't something too new. But what makes it totally new and unique is one, the level of gore, uh, you know, the face burning on the stove, yeah. the, the, the inventive kills, one being drowned, one being burnt, another being strangled. Yeah. You know, all of that sort of mutilation and the fact that it is so ferocious the way it's been shot yes um, i think that really sets it apart the fact that there are also so many kills and and you know the fact that they are being killed off one by one you know there's this sort of like rising body count which yeah. which you know, as far as like the slasher genre is concerned that sort of introduces that whole element of uh you know watching the film just to see the people getting picked off one by one in brutal ways. Um, but on top of that, aside from just being this crime mystery, it also is filled with really gothic uh, imagery, you know, really the techniques he's using of sort of, like you were just mentioning Fritz Lang, you know, he uses silhouettes and windows uh, and all these types of things, cobwebs and smoke it's it's really extremely gothic and yeah. it, i mean the star to me i mean mario bava's done a couple of really great black and white movies that are super super gothic and you know like we were talking about uh timber and yeah. hu- hugely influenced by things like black sunday which is like if you had to pick out a black and white gothic horror movie uh, that was like the archetype of what gothic horror should be. You know, you'd pick out Mario Bava's Black Sunday because it's just so that uh, opening, that opening yeah. scene, and the fact that it's you know even though it was black and white, and I mean I, th- I think if it was in color, it may not have worked as well. Um, you know where you get you get the, the masked um, executioner, the shirtless, the, the massive guy um, with a slate with a massive hammer and the mask and nails. <laughs> yeah. It's like Jesus Christ. 
Yeah, and I think I think that's definitely what sets this Italian the Italian horror films apart because you know to open the film and have this mask with the gigantic nails, gigantic hammer. I mean, the hammer's the size of the woman's head alone. Yeah, you know, just getting hammered into her face in a close-up <laughs> with blood spraying out the sides. I mean, that's that's not something you would get in the universal black and white horror movies, which as far as the look of the film goes I do think that Mario Bava you know he has created a really unique look in his cinematography that you know we we sort of know as the Italian look and the Mario Bava look but also if you do look at old uh, really old black and white universal monster movies a lot of them they do look pretty similar to to something like Black Sunday, almost identical in sort of the castles and the candlelight and the lighting. So he definitely was getting that from somewhere. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Mario Bava, he worked on a film called The Vampires. He did the cinematography, mm. which was the first ever Italian horror film um, uh, that was in the 50s. And definitely what they were attempting to do with that horror film was was to make it commercial like the American horror film. So so there's bound to have been an influence of these black and white universal horror movies. Um, and then when it comes to something like Blood and Black Lace, you know, the light, you know, you've got all this color all of a sudden, which seems really Italian, but it also, if you look at um, the Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe movies oh, that absolutely, came yeah. before Blood and Black Lace, um, they're also filled with color. But again, Mario Bava just sort of, he one-ups them with the gore level and the amount of vibrant colours. And he is he is a filmmaker. He's just so uh, inventive with all the different things he's trying. Like we were just saying about all these uh, tracking shots and dolly shots, almost every uh, shot is moving around uh, in, in some sort of a way. Yeah. Uh, and then... Uh, even with the lighting, he loves. Uh, he has lights sort of flashing and moving and changing color. Yeah, I noticed in Blood and Black Lace there was this flashing green light in the, one of the murder scenes. Well, the, and, and the club book because the the um, the oh, what's his name? The um, uh, Franco. The, uh, the the best way to describe him is a you know a cocaine taking fornicator. Um, <laughs> in that you know, and the police suspect him. And he live his his antique shop is above a club that says dancing, yeah, and it's yeah. like flashing. And that, <laughs> yeah. that scene itself is is incredibly gothic, with the uh, with the armor and the you know in inside the you know that that um, inside his antique store where the, you know he takes the you know the killer takes the the spiked glove yeah, from yeah. the armor and all the crashing you'd be you'd be devastated mind you that she's like smashed through the best part of like six grand's worth of china <laughs> but, absolutely <laughs> but you know but yeah it's fabulous absolutely fabulous and in that scene alone there's there's a couple of uh horror tropes that you just you know you couldn't even count how many films you've seen them done in before one is with this flashing light there's this moment where it flashes on and you can see the killer or yes. maybe it's a mannequin, and then and then it flashes again, and he's gone. You know, that's a just an absolutely famous uh, trope of the genre that you just see all the time in slashers. Um, and another is whatever that spiky glove thing is yes. that he puts out. I've got no idea, but it's it's killing people in a way that's 
inventive like i think and using using inventive weapons yeah you know and, and among slasher movies i mean almost every weapon ever has, has or, or a thing that could be a weapon has been used and turned into a weapon to kill people in inventive ways but uh, in in this film alone you know they've they've managed it with the weird spiky glove and the burn in the face on the stove like there's there's all these kind of inventive kills yeah. so i think that's what sort of sets it up as a template for future slasher movies uh, and makes it like quite unique quite different to everything that had come before absolutely and i mean like sort of and they also give you um and i suppose it's like the, one of the first times that it's done is the idea of the peekaboo corpse somebody opens a door and the corpse drops out yeah in this one they're uh, when right at the beginning uh, where they open it up and they find the body dropping out uh you know where she's been like rammed in the cupboard or when the, <laughs> when the boot the the boot opens and the body falls out of the boot it's, yeah yeah you know, it, you know that idea that the heroine uh or, or whoever just discovers this body and it like leaps out um it's fantastic it's, it's again it's sort of things that we take as a modern audience for granted and it sort of becomes the sort of almost the cliche doesn't it yeah yeah but actually um the reason why it's a cliche is because it's so effective yeah yeah it is so effective now, yeah you've, you've got to wonder how many times these different things uh had been done before i mean my knowledge of older horror sort of past before the 60s isn't very good but you know you you do wonder like how how often were these things done and what is uh mario bava sort of inventing for the first time here yeah absolutely and i mean i think the the sort of the you know if we think where we are now i think at the last sort of you know i think every blumhouse uh horror is contractually obliged to have some kind of cat leaping <laughs> out of an out, out of a cupboard somewhere <laughs> and i think you know you can trace you definitely trace it back to the peekaboo body um mm. you know and i mean one of the things that you know i think the giallo genre absolutely gives everybody is the ridiculously long title yeah i mean one of my favorites is your vice is in a is a locked room and only i have the keys <laughs> how do you fit that on a poster <laughs> How does that fit? I mean, I suppose in Italian, it's, it's going to be different. But like, we got blood and black lace. You got black belly of a tarantula. You get you know all these great moments, and it's sort of as a genre, um, and particularly when you look at the earlier, you know, the early stuff, it's absolutely gripping and so entertaining and so yeah. influential on so many different things. You know, different sort of um, elements of filmmaking. Like I said, you know, if you, you Brian De Palma. You get uh, you get Tim Burton as we talked about, and we get some incredible films all based around that. Um, mm. But the one thing I love about this is the MacGuffin in the film, the mm. diary, is yeah. is just is, is such a great MacGuffin. And the whole scene with the handbag, where she puts the uh, puts the diary in the handbag. And everybody is looking at it. <laughs> yeah. It's absolutely. I mean, it's almost sort of. It's. It, it almost feels like something that Hitchcock would do. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's that sort of like almost. Um, you get the release, don't you, of the bag going missing, and then we get that great bag swap moment. <laughs> yeah. Which is which is just is superb. Is brilliant. Is really mm. really really clever. So when we're looking. Um, we, you know, we talked about the, the kill, the great, um, 
the great moments in this film. As a filmmaker, what do you take away from from uh, from Blood and Black Lace? Well, I mean, what you were saying earlier about uh, him using a children's cart for the dolly shots and yeah. all of that type of thing. You know, I find hearing stuff like that is what I find particularly inspiring because that sort of inventive... I mean, this is why I love these Italian filmmakers and why I love Argento and Fulci and Bavis. You know, in Italy, it's not Hollywood. They didn't have uh, huge budgets for all the proper kit and all this sort of stuff. And uh, so they did just improvise with things and they did just like, they were experimental and, and tried out stuff and weren't afraid to do stuff like, uh, you know, Mario Bava, clearly a perfectionist in his cinematography. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, there's there's not anything in the whole film that isn't, you know, incredibly precise uh, and brilliantly executed but um to think that he's just using a little cart to do all of that stuff and not some you know proper track uh is you know it's really interesting to to hear that sort of thing and that's the sort of filmmaking that well that's the sort of thing that people should be trying in filmmaking especially when you've got no budget or very low budgets you know, you wanna you wanna be going. I I really would love to achieve this type of a shot, but I don't have the right kit. So you know, why don't I just you know I I did it on a film recently. I I didn't I didn't have the right equipment to do the sorts of shots I wanted. So I just bought a wheelchair, um, which was like eighty pound, and just had people wheeling me around in the wheelchair to get the type of shots that I wanted, and then I could sort of go wherever I needed. Um, so it's all that type of inventiveness that. Uh, it's what makes the film have that sort of visual flair uh, that sets it apart from other movies. Do you think, um, in terms of um, importance in uh, where the, where Blood and Black Lace stands? I, I, for me, I genuinely believe if we didn't have this, we obviously we wouldn't have a, a slasher genre as we know it now. Would you mm. sort of where would you where do you where do you because there is the argument that if it wasn't for this we wouldn't have the slasher we wouldn't have John Carpenter we wouldn't have so where do you stand on that argument? Yeah, I mean, I think we wouldn't have Jallo, and I don't think we'd have slasher, or you know, maybe they would have eventually come around, but they might not have been so violent. You know, they might not have focused so you know they might not have focused so much on taking beautiful women and killing them in horrible ways yeah you know it, it might have been you know average looking men that were getting killed off one by one but there's there's something really interesting about you know there's it, something unusual that because obviously mario barber's prior films had been more about sort of taking really gothic uh situations and the the castles and witchcraft and all that sort of stuff whereas this one's unique in that it takes this modern day really beautiful fashion house and beautiful women and everything really should be beautiful and elegant and that's juxtaposed with all these horrible brutal murders um so there's definitely something in that that uh probably sort of awakened a taste in horror fans for seeing you know beautiful things get totally destroyed makes it more exciting you know absolutely absolutely and i think what we get actually here when we look at barber's work we get the work of a true auteur mm. um i think he is i think he is a genuine auteur that sort of that you know and in the truer sense that you know when you're watching a barber film you recognize it as a barber film 
you recognise yeah. uh, an Argento film, you recognise a Fulci in the same way you recognise Tarantino, Hitchcock, John Carpenter, Wes Craven. Mm. Um, you know, you you genuinely get that sense with it. You know, and I think it's it, it's an it's a genre. I you know feel that has sort of gone away a little yeah. bit. Um, but definitely, definitely, I think it's waiting for somebody to actually come along and sort of revive it. Um, because there's so many elements in it, particularly now with sort of the people's obsession with true crime. Mm. I think there's a fine line between sort of, particularly when you look at some of the true crime stories, that fine line between the slasher movie, the Jalo, and a true crime story. I mean, the, mm. the, that opening kill where you see her um, being dragged around and being strangled yeah, um, and you know, the the sort of the, almost like the you know the the half naked woman shown with the fact that you know the first time that she was it's almost like a it, it could be a scene from like a sexual murder. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? That sort of pseudo sexual idea, and you see it the sort of being dragged around the place. There is that very very fine line, and I think it's you know the, the, I think it's a genre that it, you know is waiting to come back. <laughs> you know, I know they did. Uh, Adrian Brody did a um, did a movie, didn't he, called Jalo. Oh yeah, which I've not seen. I've but not, I've seen not heard good things. No, I've not heard great things. Um, so if um, from blood, blood and black, blah, 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 blood and black lace, a uh, lot of coffee catching up with me now. Um, <laughs> would you what What do you think would be a good jumping off point after this for anybody who's interested in the giallo uh, genre? Um, well, definitely exploring uh, other Mario Bava films if you haven't already seen them. Yeah. Um, Black Sabbath that he did the year before oh. is equally well. I don't like it as much as Blood and Black Lace, but it is equally as filled with sort of co- crazy color and crazy lighting and cinematography. Um, he has a little bit of an exploration of the sort of like beautiful uh, scenery that we sort of get in Blood and Black Lace uh, in one of the segments that isn't as gothic as the other ones. Yeah. Um, that's just set in an apartment and stuff like Black Sunday as well. But I think all these Italian filmmakers, including Argento and Fulci, they did, you know, they peaked and had their popular phase and then they sort of, they sort of faded and their style faded, you know, to, I guess, trying to just cash in on what was more acceptable among American audiences. They sort of lost what made them uniquely Italian filmmakers, you Mm. know, with all their crazy different styles. Um, But some of Mario Bava's later films, like, I don't know what year it is, but I know Bay of Blood definitely doesn't have, it doesn't have the same sort of crazy colours and cinematography uh, it, it it does start to feel much more like just your typical low budget slasher movie. Yeah, um, yeah. But you know, in terms of in terms of Bava's influence on American slasher movies, I mean, when I watched uh, Bay of Blood, it, it is it is very very similar to Friday the Thirteenth and all the Friday the Thirteenth movies. Mm. And even I think they copied a few of the kills as well. I'd have to watch it again, but yeah, I know there there's, was some... there's definitely that link. There is. Definitely there were some like. kills that were so similar. Um, so, so he, you know, it's definitely, definitely a huge influence. So, what in terms of um, this film? Because obviously, we, we sort of um, here on the undead work, we tend to give scores on things. So, 
on a scale of one to ten, one being awful, ten being the best, where would you come in on Blood and Black Lace? It would definitely be a ten. Wow. Because I mean, I think I think it is. You know, it's probably the most important uh, Italian horror movie. It just just because of when it was made and its age, its execution. You know, maybe I'd place Suspiria above it just because Suspiria's become so infamous, mm. um, and you know, does just takes the colour of Mario Bava and the sort of the the wild craziness of it all. Just just really takes that to new heights. So maybe maybe Suspiria tops it, but you know I was I was really really surprised when I got the Arrow Blu-ray and I put Blood and Black Lace in. You know I, I didn't know what to expect. I was already a huge Argento fan. I didn't think anyone would ever, uh, you know, better my love of Argento. But watching these films by Bava and, and sort of how old they are as well, how many years they predate the Argento stuff, mm. just makes you think. Like I mean. I mean, I've I've loved Suspiria for a long time and been really obsessed with that film for ages. But what most people love about it is the uh, the crazy death sequences and the uh, the incredible production design and all the crazy lighting and all the gothic uh, feel of it. Mm. But you look at Black Sabbath and Blood and Black Lace, and they have it all practically, you know, just as just as well executed, if not if not better in its execution that's a that, that's a but do you know what i i was coming in around about a 9.5 but you know what <laughs> i'm gonna go as a 10 i'm gonna give it a 10 as yeah, well because you've got to give it a 10 yeah and even you know that what's interesting is you sort of you get to suspiria and you get that brilliant sort of prog rock soundtrack by goblin but here we've got this really ultra classy lounge jazz Playing yeah, throughout yeah. the move, throughout the film, and that which sort of... again is is really really unusual for horror. You know, this Absolutely. type of horror, it's just such a strange mix of of what he's put together. You know, gothic lighting and gothic sort of scares and framework with the camera, mixed with like this crazy sort of jazzy score. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's strange to see a horror film quite so colourful, um, <laughs> and sort of like. And, and beautiful and, and modern you know it's just it's so many different things that are all coming together and it just works brilliantly do you know what Joe? that is I think that sums it up absolutely wonderfully that is that is, I don't think I could have summed that up any better <laughs> so where as we're wrapping this up before we sort of uh, we say goodbye where can the good people find you and what have you got coming up soon uh, well, you can find me on Twitter and uh, Facebook. If you just, I think it's at Dark Temple Films is where you can find me. But I have uh, personal accounts on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, but I also have Dark Temple accounts, which are a bit more, you know, j- j- just posting daily stills and trailers and all sorts of stuff. So, yeah. uh, and then, and then, if you probably the best place actually to check stuff out is on my website and my YouTube channels I think my YouTube is just uh, youtube.com slash dark temple films or whatever the handle is uh, for the user channels it's yeah. dark temple films and my website is www.darktemple.co.uk so yeah it's pretty easy to find yeah. me under my company <laughs> name dark temple but um, and in terms of uh my upcoming stuff um i've 
I mean, like I say, I'm, I'm working at the moment on the edit of my film, A Werewolf in England, and I'm very close to the end. So that will be finally coming out. Well, it's going to come out on DVD this year. It's coming to the UK first, which is unusual for my stuff. Excellent. And, it's, and it seems to be coming out pretty fast because it's been a really tight deadline on this. Mm. Um, so, you know, there's already a pre-order link up on Amazon. Um, I'm assuming they're going to stick to that release date. I mean, it's, a, it's been a really tight deadline. Oh, I can imagine. So we'll, we'll see what happens, but I'm sure that'll be out this year. Uh, I also have my film Vampire Virus, uh, it's completed. I don't know when it's out, but I should imagine that will come out this year because it was completed at the start of the year. There's already a trailer and a poster. Um, I also completed my film Death Ranch, uh, which is a sort of grindhouse, black exploitation inspired splatter movie uh, uh, that I shot out in Tennessee, set in the 70s. Wow. Um, that is uh, it's going to have its world premiere at Grimfest, which is digital this year, uh, sometime in early October. So I'll be posting about how people can get to watch that. But in fact, of all my films, that's the one I'm, I'm the most proud of and the one I'm hoping that the most people can get a chance to watch. So the world premiere is Grimfest. So hopefully Excellent. people can tune in. Excellent. Excellent. Charlie, my friend, it has been amazing having you on and I can't wait. Uh, I'm really looking forward to Death Ranch because I read a little bit about it. I'm really, really excited. And I'm, i got to be honest, I am really excited about uh, seeing Derek, our friend Derek Nelson, as uh, uh, getting wolfed up if he does. I'm really, really, <laughs> yeah. you know, getting his wolf on. Um, honestly, thank you so much for giving up your time and Thanks being on the show. Me. It's been fantastic. And you have an open invitation to come back anytime you feel like so just kick the door open and say hey we're doing this give us a shout it's no problem Charlie thank you very much thank you very much it's been an absolute pleasure for being on thank you very much and we are back ladies and gentlemen and I am joined by my very very special guest on this episode I am joined by a master of the macabre himself Mr Alex Bourne Alex how the devil are you sir I'm very well, thank you. Good, 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 good. Bank holiday, how's your head feeling? A um, little bit fragile today, but all good. Yeah, it's all excellent. That's excellent. <laughs> usually Leighton, who's my co-host in here, is usually with us, and he's usually dying a death. So after <laughs> drinking himself into oblivion. But we are here, and we are talking, um, and I got to, got to watch it yesterday, which was great. Uh, we are talking about your film, Clownface. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit surreal that it's actually out there now. I've spent like, must have been about four years working on it. So it's just a bit weird that it's actually people are seeing it now. So yeah, it's good. Does it feel like you've sort of released, you know, you sent, you've sent your child off to school? Yeah, yeah, it's a bit like that, isn't it? It's in the world now. So it's, um, it's no longer my thing. It's everybody else's thing now. So yeah. How do you feel about it now? Sort of uh, now that it's out there, what's the what's, what's your overriding feeling at this moment in time? I think it's just relief more than anything. Um, I think it's just like I say, it's it's just putting yourself out there, and I think it's it's a hard thing to do, but it's a it's a huge relief to actually have finished it all and um, having people's feedback and, and stuff. So, yeah, it's good. Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite a personal process, isn't it? Um, Definitely. 
and I'm sort of, you know, one of the things that sort of, you know, is always interesting, particularly when you, you know, whenever you speak to sort of writer and directors, is everybody's got a different process to how they get to that point, uh, get to that that end sort of uh, the end product, and it's always some kind of personal sort of journey that everybody goes on. All sounds a bit X factor in it when you say journey, but you sort of, yeah. you know, where did Clownface start off for you? Where where did the inspiration for Clownface come from? It's weird, really. I mean, um, I don't know if you know this, but I'm, I do a lot of special effects and I make masks. So the first kind of, I don't know, incarnation of it was actually a, a mask that I designed. It wasn't, it wasn't actually in the film itself, but it was like a proto-clownface type mask. Mm. Um, and I've always wanted to do a slasher film. I, I think I've been obsessed with slashers since I was probably about 11 years old when I first watched the first Halloween film. Yeah. Um, just became absolutely hooked on them. And I've always like written scenes and shot stuff with friends um, when I was in school, um, high school. So, yeah, it was it just all came together that way, I suppose. Um, got in touch with the producer, Mark Adams, who I'd worked with previously on a number of other projects. Um, and just sent him the script, and I, I just wanted his, his advice more than anything. How do I get this off the ground? Mm. Um, and he he kind of like took me under his wing and um, went from there really. And he really pushed me. I think he he did a really good. I I just thought, okay, I'm going to shoot this really low budget thing and probably stick it on YouTube or something. Um, but he really pushed me. I think so. It was really really good of him, and like I say, he took me under his wing. So it was. It's all, it's all about learning, isn't it, and networking, so... Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, I'm sort of, I'm kind of feeling my way into the, into this, into a very similar sort of process with my first, with, with, with my first sort of, my first feature. But obviously, you know, you did, you directed a segment for, an anthology for The House of Scream and Death in 2017, yeah. um, which has like a gothy 60s, 70s sort of... Um, portmanteau vibe going on sort of and like one of those it put the put sort of the anthology film is one of my i love a good anthology film you know going back yeah. to like um you know tales from the crypt um one of my favorites is monster club um where vincent price uh is in it and they got he's got like four great different stories going on what was it like sort of working on that and then going into sort of something like clown face because you directed a segment for house of screaming death and then you did yeah Clownface. what was that what was the leap like for that well it was it was weird actually because we had already shot the opening 10 minutes for clown face before house of screaming death right um so i i kind of cut my teeth on clown cut my teeth on clown face the opening 10 minute segment which is all it was gonna it was kind of like a pilot sort of like a test yeah. film proof of concept whatever you want to call it yeah so, uh, and I knew that I was going to be working with Ben Thompson, the director of photography on House of Screaming Death. So I got him involved in this uh, short clown face just to kind of see how we would work together and, you know, just get a vibe for it also. So, yeah, so I shot um, that 10 minute segment and then nothing happened with that for about two years after. Um, and uh, during that time, I wrote the script for the, the feature length, the rest of the feature length film. And... Mm shot um house of screaming death which was good it was nice it was a good group of people that i was working with who i'd worked with before dave hastings kush patel yeah um troy troy Dennison, and they um 
I think initially um, it was somebody else that was involved who backed out, and they sort of <laughs> they, they sort of approached me and said, "Have you got um, have you got a story that we could that we could use?" Um, I didn't even know that I would be directing or what. I just kind of wrote um, a page of like just a just a brief outline, gave that to them. They said, "Yeah, um, are you up for?" writing the script and you can direct it and do whatever you want so it was, it was good um it was a, quite a big project actually as well there was a lot of people involved in that yeah it's got um, a big think, it's got a good it's got a strong cast it's got a very very strong cast yeah um we got ian mcneese on that one as well which was amazing yeah um very uh very starstruck i, I just um on that one I, I just kind of sat in the chair watching him kind of just go through his lines and stuff and i was just in awe of him the whole time he was there he's brilliant <laughs> so in terms of um you know clown face itself because obviously um, it's currently it's on release isn't it in the u.s at the moment that's it yeah yeah so for the people who are listening in the uk who haven't seen it yet um what's the gist behind clown face give them a give them a, give them the synopsis the highlights um, I, I, I don't know whether there is really much of a storyline, to be honest. It's literally, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm fully honest, um, it's it's literally a, a, a guy in a clown mask um, going around abducting and killing people in a small town. I, I really wanted to focus more so on um, the characters themselves. I thought, I think like a lot of slasher films um, don't really kind of abandon that um, character thing. And I really wanted to give the characters I, I just wanted to focus on the characters in their interactions emotions and more so than the actual story itself if that makes any sense yeah absolutely absolutely i think you're doing yourself a bit of a disservice where he says you know it doesn't have a story i think it's got a, you know that idea because you, you you sort of um you know as the film you talk about sort of urban legends and you know Clownface himself has got a great look um yeah. and it's, it's it's nice to see that um Instead of just somebody going for a generic clown makeup, which seems to be the sort of you know the big the way people are going, very much sort of you know inspired by it and those kind of things, you know he's for me he he had that sort of leather face vibe. Yeah, yeah. Um, as I say, because I I made the masks, um, I, I wanted to just play around with it. Obviously, I don't know if you noticed as well. He's got about three or four different looks in the film mm. as well. Yeah. Um, so I just thought. It, interesting just to kind of play around with and, and help the the look evolve as well throughout the film i thought that was an interesting concept and the fact that the mask is supposedly flesh obviously over time it's going to rot yeah so he's going to want to make new masks every so often so um yeah i just thought that was an interesting thing and i think that phil the guy who played him uh, phil bailey yeah. uh, did an absolutely incredible job um with the character um it was it was really just written just as a silent you know your generic silent killer but i yeah. think phil really brought a lot of personality and fun to it and he relished in in playing that role and just being evil and yeah he's great yeah and i mean you can see that he's he's clearly enjoying the character um and i love you know some of the touches that he added to it which one of the things that i did love was the laugh actually yeah. which you know predates whacking phoenix doing the laugh in the Joker, yeah, um, yeah. which was which is you know which is which is great acting, and you know one of the things that um, I obviously coming from a theatre background for me, mask work is always very very interesting because particularly mm. when you have a mask that has almost you know minimal features on there, you're able to project lots of things yourself onto that mask, um, yeah. and he certainly you know uh, and physically he's quite a big guy. 
mm-hmm. um, and it, that that level of menace to it. And he did a great acting job with it. He did a really, really good acting job with it. I enjoy, I really enjoyed his performance. Definitely, I remember we filmed in the tunnels, Drake Low Tunnels, for a, about a week, um, and he would he just. Even when the cameras weren't rolling, he'd have the mask on. He'd be skulking around in the shadows, freaking everybody out. It was, it was great, <laughs> great fun. Now, you, in terms of um, your cast, um, your two leads, you sort of Hannah Douglas and Danny. Is it Danny Tonks? Danny Tonks, yeah. Yeah, they did a great job in it, and sort of really, um, in terms of um, depth of emotion that characters yeah. bring they did a great job what's your, do you have a particular process with working with actors um are you a hands-on or you just do you step back and let them do their thing do you give notes what what's what as a director what's your what's what's your process with working with actors i, I don't know i think um i do have kind of like I, I suppose every writer to some extent writes a scene and thinks okay he has to play it this particular way um but working with such great actors it's i think it's good um because filmmaking as a whole it's it's a collab it's a collaboration isn't it so i think it's good to give actors some freedom and give them choices to make because it's their mark on the character isn't it so um and i I know a lot of danny tonks hannah douglas richard book they were all phenomenal so um i'd give them pointers maybe try it this way, maybe try it that way. But it was just incredible. I mean, watching them kind of, because we we, we didn't have much time to do rehearsals or read-throughs or anything mm. like that because it was such a low-budget thing. Everybody was busy. Um, so when we came to do it, we would just block the scene out. I would give my feedback. and um, But yeah, like when you write something, maybe even think, oh, this, this scene isn't great. But then when you actually see them performing it, um, and you get goosebumps. It was, yeah, it was amazing. I can't, I can't, that's my favorite thing. Just seeing an actor take a scene and just make it just incredible, better than you thought it was going to be. So, yeah. Yeah. And that is, that is something special to do, isn't it? When you watch, when you see somebody take your work and sort of turn it into a, and flesh it out into, into a character and you sort of embody it. It's, it, it, you know, it's, it's a great, great, great feeling. What's your, do you have a pro, a particular way that you write? Um, do you, you know, is there a specific, do you sort of, uh, do you, uh, do treatments first? Do you dive straight in? Do you write it out as a, what's, how do you come about creating, write it, you know, your writing process? So I'll, um, I've got a lot of notebooks. Um, yeah, <laughs> I do write a lot. Of, <laughs> I do just scribble a lot of crap into notebooks. Um, then I'll usually open up a word document and try and plan out every single scene mm. um so at least i've got like a list like a list of scenes and what needs to happen in that particular scene um so i do, I do break it i'm actually quite organized and i'm not in any other aspect of my life but <laughs> when it comes to writing um yeah i do i do um because i just break it down and just break down break it down into three out of the three act structure as well so this needs to happen in act one act two act three um so yeah i'm quite i'm actually quite organized with that surprisingly for me do you um but yeah so it's all sorry yeah, go on. do you find that the, the three act structure is it do you think it, it sort of helps you in terms of giving you scaffolding or um is it something that you just sort of is it something that you unintentionally went into um it, it is a it is a good structure for I think just helping you kind of plan out what's going to happen and I don't know whether um, 
I, I don't know whether I'm going to be using it in my next because I'm working on something at the moment, writing mm. something, and I'm, I'm I'm trying not to use it as much or because it is it is a bit of a crutch. Um, so, but yeah, it, it, I find it helpful anyway. Yeah, I, I mean, do you find that sometimes you get into the sort of um, act two wastelands of like, oh my, I don't know what I've got to do here. I know my end. I know I've yeah. got a great, but I've got like a bit here in the middle where I'm just like, what the fuck is going on here? It's like, and you think, think kind of feel like all your characters like standing around twiddling their thumbs. I think for Clownface in particular, I obviously I'd done the first ten minutes, we'd shot that, and it was just there for ages, and then I had to write the rest of it. And the hardest part of this script was just getting it started again, getting it. Where do I pick up from? Do you know mm. what I mean? It was because we'd filmed that, and it was like two years prior I, I wanted it to be like a year later so that it kind of accounted for any changes in characters any like people or whatever so um but it, yeah i just found it hard to just pick it up from that point more than anything to be yeah. honest yeah and now in terms of um the funding process for you know the, the the way that you went through it was it crowdfunded did you you know we were able to get in uh, um, investment how did you find that and you know how did that how did that go for you i know um mark adams found some um some investment but we did do a kickstarter as well which was successful surprisingly yeah um and i i did spend a lot of time on facebook just kind of messaging people that i hadn't spoke to from school for years and just hi oh, can you take a look at this it was i mean I've, I've worked in call centers in the past so it was pretty much cold calling everybody that i knew um <laughs> so yeah it seemed you, to work did, so how did you find like obviously we 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 launched our indiegogo campaign from nothing you know and just sort of you know it's an it's been a really good learning process for me did you find um did you find it quite an intense sort of way of raising money by Indiegogo, because uh, you use kick, did you use Kickstarter or Indiegogo? It's Kickstarter, yeah. I was I was so stressed out because Kickstarter, if you don't reach your end goal, you don't get anything. Um, so we had a goal. I think it was eight thousand mm. pound, and I think we were up to like six thousand, and it was the last day, and I was pulling my hair out. <laughs> if we don't get this, <laughs> so yeah. Um, but it, I don't think I'd do it again. If, if I had the option to, I mean, I, I definitely wouldn't go to Kickstarter just because it was that stressful. Yeah. I'd rather have an Indiegogo because, you know, even if you don't make the final goal, at least you've got something, haven't you? So Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And that, that does that take really. the pressure off. It does take definitely. the pressure off. Now, when definitely. you were saying about, um, you know, you, you sort of you, you talked about your producer taking you under, under his wing. Um, was he very hands-on or did he give you free reign? How did that work? He, he did give me a lot of free reign, in all fairness. Um, obviously, I'd, I'd written it. I'd, I had a big um, part of casting as well. Mm. Um, he, he gave me suggestions. I mean, I know that he's got experience himself directing as well. So obviously, all of his, you know, all, all of his advice was valuable to me. So, uh, but he, like I say, he, he really did let me kind of run with it which was nice. And I think a lot of films, um, a lot of like big studio films, if you write something, it's going to end up nothing like how you originally pictured it. But luckily mm. um, I was just blessed in the fact that I, I'd got something and end result that I'd, I'd worked towards and that 
like the vision that I had from the start. So I was really lucky in that respect. Yeah. And I mean, it's sort of, um, in terms of like, sort of, you know, did you, did you do a lot of short, um, storyboarding for it? Did you do, cause it's got a great look. Um, the character yeah. has, you know, and the, and the cat, you know, the character itself, or clown face, has got a really, really good. Did you storyboard or do you shot list? Which, which, which do you prefer? I um, shot list. I did shot list. I did. A, I did do a couple of storyboards for the. Um, there's one particular scene. Um, I don't know. Can I talk about it? Yeah, or? absolutely. Yeah, by all means. Yeah, I mean it's it's out now, isn't it? It's yeah. the scene where um, it's the scene where the guy gets skinned. Um, yeah, great scene. In, great in the forest. Scene. Yeah, I. I did. I did actually storyboard that one. That's. I think that's the only one I did actually storyboard though. Um, just because I wanted it to be, I was quite particular about that scene. Um, but yeah, it was mostly just shot lists. But working with Ben Thompson, the director of photography, he is just incredible anyway. So I'll, I'll literally let him do whatever he wants. Um, he had a lot of great suggestions. So and he, he's got so much experience in in the in the industry so yeah that's really it's, it, it's really really handy to have that isn't it somebody who's who's got that knowledge who sort of who can sort of you know if, if you have this idea where you're going to think i'm going to do this then they go yeah that's great if you've got a crane or we can take that yeah. wall out you know or did, did he did he light it himself or did you have somebody else on hand to light or you know what was how did that work out for you yeah we had um he he basically told people where to put the lights yeah um <laughs> um i think he, yeah he took he did take a while to set some certain shots up i mean i'd have i had a monitor so i could see how the shot looked and i'd think mm. wow that looks amazing and he'd say no it doesn't you haven't even lit it yet and it'd be tweaking lights for ages just yeah. like just fiddling like the smallest amount of light here and it was just but yeah he, he knew exactly what he was doing so yeah. i was in good hands from the start with with that one so um one of the things i noticed is that uh, obviously you worked with an editor on this um yeah. previously had previously sort of working on shorts and those kind of had you edited yourself or do you always worked with an editor i can't stand editing if i'm, <laughs> if I'm 100 honest um yeah, um, I, I did spend a lot of time with the editor on this one, though, um, which was good. I mean, I think we spent more time editing it than we actually sh shot the film, but um, I suppose that's just standard, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but yeah, we um, I, wor I worked really closely with him, and I, I spent a lot of time there with him. Um, I think because this was the first feature film he'd edited as well, so right. he was like he was a bit nervous just making decisions on his own so he wanted me there to sort of support him as well so um but so i think he did a brilliant job yeah were you there or uh, for the entire editing process or did you sort of you know dip in and out i i was there for most of it there were times when i tried to push him to kind of do certain scenes on his own um mm. just because i think he needed that um I don't know that experience of because yeah. I know a lot of the time directors aren't going to be there, are they? They're not always going to be. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, there are some. So. There are some people who you know um, were very, very, you know, are there from day one. But then there are some yeah. people that sort of go, you know, cut print out over to you. You get on with it, and I'll see you at the premiere. Um, yeah, but it's. I think it depends on sort of, you know, what people want. You know, people's vision for things, isn't it? Um, yeah, and if you've got that trust with that with your editor. I think that is yeah. um, that. That's absolutely key. Now, one of the things um, that I sort of, you know, one of the things I really, really picked up on um, was your, you know, 
in terms of that that final shot at the end. I won't give too much away because I won't spoil the ending. Okay. But the lighting for that was absolute, and the, and that 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 final image was really really striking. Um, yeah. Was that part of that full week of filming down in the tunnels? Because it's a great location. Yeah. So everything in all of Clownface's lair that was all in the in Draco tunnels. Um, as I say, I think it was a, a week. Like, well, it wasn't even a full week. It was five days of filming there. Um, we had, I think it was six in the morning till six in the evening. We didn't even have, a, it was 12 hours, which sounds like a long day, but not, it's not particularly a long filming day. It's nothing. <laughs> no. um, so we, the pressure was really on during, during those tunnel scenes. There was, there was even talk at the time of, okay, we might not be able to have chance to film that last scene. Right. Um, so the pressure was on. I think there was a, there was also a few scenes that we didn't get around to filming just just for time purposes. We mm. had to be out of there by a certain time because they did um, like ghost hunts or something. Yeah. Um, it's a great location. So it's really, yeah, it was brilliant. Really, really... So where where did you film? Because I know did you do some filming in Cardiff or because I know obviously I'm just thinking just trying to work out how did uh, how did the twins manage to sort of end up in because uh, you shot in. West in the West Midlands. Yeah, it was it was all in the West Midlands. Yeah, um, wow. the, the twins, um, Raven twins, would drive down. Um, the guy who played Clownface also lived in. I think he lives in Cardiff. Right. Wales, okay. I'm with you. I'm with you. And so, so the, the, we had a few a few um, Welsh uh, cast and crew actually. So yeah. Yeah, we but, get about. Um, it's not. It's not. Yeah, I was going to say it's not. It's not too far anyway, is it? No, no. no it's, it's, I mean, it's quite interesting when you ask anybody in Wales, that's just over there. Over there can yeah. be anywhere from a hundred miles up to you know four hundred miles. That's over there. It won't, be, won't take long to get there. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, you talked about your sort of your love of um, your, the influence of slasher movies. What are some of your mm-hmm. favourites? What are the th- what are what are the ones that you go back to? It's got. A, I, I I've got to say, Halloween is is my go to. Mm. Um, the first first nineteen seventy eight Halloween. Yeah. Um, I think it's just a, a staple at this point, and I think any aspiring filmmaker needs to watch it. Um, despite, doesn't matter what genre they want to do. I think because it was it, it was a it was a phenomenon. I think, and it's an absolute masterpiece. So I think that's always my go-to. And it's a, um, it's a brilliant um, example of sort of lean filmmaking, of absolutely. small budget and lean filmmaking. It's it's, it's, it's and it's, yeah. it's it's almost it's flawless. Definitely. Film. Um, yeah, go on. I was going to say, what other, what, were there any other ones that you go back at any particular favourites um, of yours? I don't know. I mean, I, I love, I love bad films. Um, <laughs> as weird as that sounds, I, I, I think there's some. There's, I think I can see the artistry in a lot of stuff. Um, yeah, absolutely. Just like, obviously, um, you've got your Friday the Thirteenth, your Nightmare on Elm Streets, all of that kind yeah. of stuff. Just, just love it all. To be honest, you put me on the spot a little bit. I can't think of anything. <laughs> it's always the way, isn't it? Where you go, you go blank, yeah. and then afterwards you go, "Oh God, I should have said the Slayer," or "Oh God, the Burning," yeah. or yeah. you know, <laughs> you know, something always, something always comes back. I mean, for me, like some of my major influences are obviously, you know, is Italian cinema and talking about like. People like you know Fulci is my you know is is one of my all time idols, um, and people like Mario Bava and you know you, you know you know Umberto Lindsay and those kind of guys. Um, are there any other sort of influences that you draw on outside of the slasher genre? I don't know. I think I I 
because I've I've had a, I've had people comparing Clownface to some Italian cinema. It's definitely um, got a bit of a shallow feel to it at times. It yeah, does have that bit of you yeah. know you got you got the mass killer, um you know it, it's you know it does have a bit of a, a bit of an Italian vibe to it. I don't know whether it's uh, subconscious on some level. Yeah. Um, maybe I don't know. I don't. I didn't really go into it with a specific. Obviously, I wanted to. I wanted to pay homage to a lot of the, you know, Halloween's and Friday the Thirteenth and all that. Mm. Um, mostly, maybe I don't know. Um, I, I didn't really think. Okay, I'm going to have it look a particular way necessarily. I wanted it to have that Halloween feel to it. But yeah. I wanted it to also have its own, its own identity as well. So, I don't know. Like I say, I think a lot. Of, a lot of the time, even writing, sometimes you you, you write stuff and then it's subconscious. Um, I was writing a scene not long ago, actually, and then looked back at it and realised, oh, actually, I can't do that because that was in the Joker. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> it is interesting, yeah. isn't it? How you sort of you, you sort of you have these great occasion. I do it occasionally. You go, it's a really good idea, and I write it down. And you just go, actually, no, that's like I don't know, Raiders of the Lost Ark or something. But you have yeah, that sort of exactly. moment in you where you just you know it, because there's lots out there now. We live in an age where. You know, obviously, show my age a bit now. I, you know, the video, the video shop was was king, and you'd sort of, yeah. you know, you 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 stumble across things, but now everything is available, you know, at the click of a button. So you mm-hmm. know, and and obviously, growing up in the eighties, there was you know with the, the video nasty thing. So some certain things just disappeared, and now we're in a, you know, we can we we can now get our hands on these again. You know, we can go and see Massacre in Dinosaur Valley and go, my God, that shouldn't have been banned. It's just a really poor film. It's just... <laughs> um, but looking at sort of, um, you know, the future, what have you, you talked about? You, you're in the middle of writing a project. What have you got coming up next? Um, I, I don't really want to say too much because I'm, I'm about a third into writing this, this new script. Right. Um, it's, it's another horror, but it's probably the... the polar opposite of clown face if i'm if i'm honest right okay um, so um but yeah it's it's more of a psychological one i would say um i think a lot of people have commented on um the fact that i've got i'm quite good with characters mm. um so i kind of want to draw on my strengths a little bit more um yeah. definitely I, I think i was a bit um out of my depth in a few times on clown face just because it was such a huge project right so i wanted i wanted i wanted to try and do something that was just more character focused so but yeah like i said i'm about a third into that now so um generally how long does it take you to write it depends i mean i think i wrote clown face in under a month mm. um it wasn't a long process and that wasn't me working every day for a month um yeah. do you do number do you do multiple drafts or I tend to try and do about three. So I'll do like a rough draft. Yeah. Then I'll go in and tidy it up and work out any kinks, any plot holes that I can see. Yeah. Um, then I'll probably send it to a few people. Um, like I said, Mark Adams on this one. Um, I think it's always good to have somebody else read it. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, um, Stephen King always talks about killing your children when, you, when yeah. he talks about editing. Um, and do you find that hard to to self edit? I don't think so. I, I was actually quite brutal on this one, if I'm honest. Um, 
I I can easily kill my babies. It doesn't it doesn't yeah. bother me too much. I think <laughs> I think it's 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 the bigger picture you've got to think about in at the end of the day, isn't it? You can't have a three hour long slasher film. I don't think so. Um, People have tried, and I don't think they've been as successful. But um, no, I mean it's it, it, you know. Did you have um, you talked about not being able to shoot things because uh, for time? Um, yeah. But was there anything that you were you were determined to get shot for Clownface? No, everything that I wanted to shoot that was important, I think I managed to get. So um, again, I was really lucky on that on that as well. Mm. Um, I, I think anything that we missed was just minor minor things. I think the one thing I I do kind of wish we'd have got more of was just a bit more kind of you know um the the tunnels all all of that stuff i just wish we'd have got more kind of i don't know uh, even just like establishing shots maybe and just a bit more um just 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 to add a little bit more of the foreboding atmosphere yeah yeah just like these long shots of these tunnels maybe and because it was a fantastic location it was just so hard we were so pressed for time there but but yeah i I don't know i think yeah most of what i've got i've most of what I wanted, I got. So I can't really ask for more than that, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, no, no, and you know, I'm, you know, at some time, and when I when we shot when we did the short for school hall, we shot in three days, um, yeah, and not even full. Basically, two, you know, two evenings and one full day. Um, and there are times where you go back and you go, oh, I wish I'd done that. Oh, I needed that. I should, you know. But that that, that that's part of the learning process, isn't it? You know, you learn yeah, all the time, and it's sort of you know you you think about the sort of you know oh, I should I this and joining that shot and those kind of things. Um, so it's obviously you're talking about um, you, you know what you you know you you're working on this current project. Where can the good people find um, Clownface at the moment? Um, I think it's available on most streaming services at the moment. I, um... There is a DVD out as well, but I don't know if that's just on Amazon or whether that's in any stores or anything. I'm not sure. Um, but Google it if you like. Say <laughs> Google. Google's the best, the best friend in the world to anyone. To be honest, I'd say so. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, as always, as we wrap things up on the on the podcast, this is your opportunity to shamelessly plug anything that you want where can you know things for for example where can the good people find you on the uh, on the old social media um i'm not really massive on social media if i'm honest um <laughs> i have got a twitter which is um i don't even know what the um what it is it's a it's a clown face one so i think it's at clown face movie on yeah twitter. okay um, cool yeah that's pretty much it, really. I've got a Facebook, but obviously that's more of a personal thing. So yeah, um, but yeah, I'm quite. <laughs> I need I need to start putting myself out there a little bit more. I think, to be honest, modesty. You're a modest media. man. You're a modest man. Yeah. Um, Alex, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Um, and honestly, I loved Clownface, um, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I'm looking forward to uh, seeing what comes next. Thank you for joining us. No problem. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. No worries. You take care now, my friend. Take care now. Okay. Take care. Bye. And so, ladies and gentlemen, our time together draws to an end. First of all, I want to say thank you to Charlie for being on. I want to say a big thank you for Alex for joining us. 
Um, it's been great uh, recording this episode. I've really, really enjoyed myself. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, apologies for it being a bit late. Um, lots of things going on. Of course, we got the school hall slaughter campaign that is um, that is underway. Um, and our Indiegogo campaign is going to be coming to an end. Um, but first, uh, before we go, I'd like to say a big thank you to the following people. Okay, up first we have got Maury Binfield. Thank you so much for your contribution. Dr. Willie Dye, love the name. Thank you so much for giving. Uh, Sheham Narayanan, I apologise if I have butchered your last name, but brother, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. And of course, last and certainly not least, Mr. Lee, you, sir, Mr. GZ Lee, you have absolutely been a lifesaver. Thank you so much for your generous contribution. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is that for another episode. I know, I know. So it's all that is left for me to say in the immortal words of Count Duckula. Good night up there, whatever you